one is that I think people sometimes look at it as like it's going to be this cure, and it's not. And that's another major misconception. It is not a cure. It is a set of tools that individuals with Tourette's syndrome and their families can use to minimize the intensity and frequency of their tics if and when they choose to. But it is not a cure. It's not going to make the tics go away. Welcome to The Uptick, brought to you by the New Jersey Center for Tourette Syndrome and Associated Disorders, empowering children and adults through education, advocacy, and research by sharing the stories and experiences relevant to the TS community. Thank you for joining us on this episode of our podcast. I am here today with Jeremy Lichtman, who's a licensed psychologist offering cognitive behavioral therapy in central New Jersey, and he specializes in Tourette patients. Jeremy, how's your day going? Hi, my day is going excellent. Thank you. How is yours? Very good. Very good. Busy day, but doing doing well. Uh, good start to the week here. So I know you are a specialist in CBIT, and we'll talk in a second about what that is. I would love to know just off the bat, if you could describe CBIT in one or two words, how would you describe it? Ooh, that is a good question. Uh, <laughs> just jumping off real quick, uh, you got it right. You're in the club. You called it CBIT, not CBIT. That's always the secret handshake of the CBIT club is which, <laughs> which one do you call it? So you got it. So one or two words is tool, not cure. That's good. It's one tool in the toolbox for exactly. managing ticks. So talk to me a little bit about your background and, and how you got started as a psychologist, but also what made you want to specialize in Tourette patients? Sure. Way back when, as a, as a wee infant. No, I'm kidding. But, but basically, <laughs> I'm not completely kidding when I say that. Both my parents are psychologists. And as a child, I, you know, I have a Tourette syndrome diagnosis myself, I ADHD, you know. Uh, learning challenges, you know, the the range. And I was really lucky. I had parents who got it in a way that, you know, very often, you know, working with parents and families of children with Tourette syndrome, you know, like like they're scrambling for answers. And my parents had a little bit of that background knowledge to begin with. And they really created an environment that was uh, set up for me to be successful, for me to create the kind of life that I would want to live with no particular limitations, especially no limitations per se, given my diagnoses. And so kind of growing up, experiencing that and seeing the work that my parents did with other people and helping other people. My father's run nonprofit organizations his whole life, helping people with special needs and just kind of watching the impact that they've had through their work definitely led me in, in, in this direction. Plus, so just a fascination with human psychology in general and, and kind of wanting to understand how people work. As I've learned more, I, I, I've really learned that we have no idea. But that aside, now it's just a mystery that intrigues me. So really kind of, you know, their experiences, my experiences growing up. And so by high school, I kind of had the idea I was going to become a psychologist. That was important to me. And then college, grad school. When I was in graduate school, one of the, the graduate schools I applied to was Rutgers, in part because they had a Tourette syndrome program, which I was really interested in. Less in some ways because I have Tourette syndrome myself, although obviously that's a piece of it but largely because there was supposed to be really excellent training in cognitive behavioral therapy for Tourette syndrome, but the co-occurring, you know, commonly co-occurring comorbidities, right? OCD, anxiety, depression, these other areas that I had a lot of interest in and really, really wanted to become an expert in cognitive behavioral therapy. And so that's what led me to Rutgers and the TS program. And so by definition, being in the TS program, I was working with, you know, patients or clients with Tourette syndrome. But really something I kind of knew for my own life and tangentially, but what really came home to me was how heterogeneous, right? How, how 
differently TS can be experienced by different people and how sort of like, you know, rule number one in the treatment of Tourette syndrome is assess for everything because very often there's more going on and the other things are more challenging than the ticks themselves very often. Yeah, yeah. But really, that, that really came home to me there. And so when I think about working with individuals or families with Tourette syndrome, I really, I, I really think more broadly about using cognitive behavior therapy to help individuals who are struggling. Because back to what I said before, CBIT, it's a tool, it's not a cure. And cognitive behavioral therapy is not about curing the symptoms that people experience. It's not about curing people. It's about empowering people to have the tools to manage the symptoms that they're experiencing in their life, not to necessarily make them go away, but to be able to achieve a life worth living, knowing that they have the tools to do that. I love that. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about what CBIT is, what it stands for, and, and how the process works? So CBIT, or Comprehensive Behavioral Intervention for Tick, is a form of cognitive behavior therapy, right? So cognitive behavior therapy, or CBT, is kind of this umbrella, right? And there's a CBT for depression, for anxiety, for self-harm, for OCD, right? You know, lots of different forms of, of cognitive behavior therapy. But the core principles within cognitive behavior therapy more broadly is, one, so these cognitive and these behavioral principles, right? Behaviors are, are causal. They don't exist in a vacuum. Things going on around us affect us. And if we can shape, shape our behaviors, change our behaviors, we can change the way we interact with the world around us and the emotions that we experience. But also thoughts, cognitions are a really, really key part, right? The idea that the way we think about situations can also affect how we feel and how we respond to situations. And the idea that let's teach people to recognize how their thoughts and their behavior and the environment is all impacting how they're feeling and what they're doing and give them the tools to shift or change some of those where it makes sense to. And so that's kind of cognitive behavior therapy broadly. So then when we narrow in into CBIT, CBIT is really a package of treatments that's composed of, I think of it at least, four main components. The first is education, psychoeducation. The idea that, you know, there's so much misconceptions around Tourette's syndrome, myths versus facts, and the key piece in, in the education piece is to really help the individuals you're working with and the families you're working with have a clearer sense of what is a tick, what is not a tick, what, is, what are the comorbidities, how do we talk about ticks, how do we think about it, what's, you know, I wouldn't say what causes them because we don't really know, but kind of all of that educational component and also what this treatment is going to look like. And then the treatment itself has three main components. So this is a package, again, that was put together by uh, uh, Doug Woods and his collaborators. And it's also a treatment that has meets sort of the APA Division 12 gold standards for being an effective treatment, right? So we know it works. Doesn't mean it works 100% for everyone, but it's a treatment that works, right? The research shows in double-blind uh, randomized controlled trials that it, 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 it works. And so after education, there are these three other components. One major piece is relaxation strategies. The idea that we know heightened emotional states, anything, you know, the classic ones like being sad, being angry, being frustrated, being angry, but also being excited, being overwhelmed, being really, really happy. These all can affect how intense and how frequent one's ticks are. And so if we can find ways to sort of relax, our ticks might not be as bad. And so really the two main strategies here in the CBIT manual are diaphragmatic or deep breathing. Right, kind of slowing down the breath as a way to trigger the parasympathetic nervous system, slow down that sympathetic nervous system reaction. And then um, also progressive muscle relaxation, right? Tightening and loosening the muscles to sort of create that feeling of relaxation and looseness throughout the body. 
the key here is that this is not a strategy that's meant to respond directly to the ticks. It's a strategy that's meant to help us respond to stressful environmental situations, thereby, one, decreasing, hopefully, the intensity and frequency of ticks in and of itself, but also allowing us to more effectively use the other core pieces of this treatment. So that's like kind of that first piece, is the relaxation. The second piece is what's called a functional assessment and a functional intervention. A core principle in behavioral treatment, CBIT, Comprehensive Behavioral Intervention for Ticks, right, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. A core principle in behavioral therapy is that the environment matters. Things that, you know, we, we look at a behavior in isolation that's a challenge or causing a problem or something that we want to change. We have to look at what's called the antecedents, what's coming before that might be increasing the likelihood of that behavior uh, occurring. And also what's happening after, right? What's the consequence that might be reinforcing that behavior? So an example outside of ticks might be, you know, a, a child who is pushing another kid. They push another kid or, or, or throwing property or cantripping. What we always want to look at is what's going on right before? Well, did the kid just push a kid out of nothing? Probably not. Maybe the other kid pushed that first kid that the kid we're looking at first. Maybe they said something really upsetting to that kid. Maybe this is a kid who's not getting a lot of attention and was waiting to see other people look at him or her before they pushed the other kid. What's going on right beforehand, right? And then what's going on afterwards? Afterwards, if a bunch of people cheer the kid on, that's probably going to increase the likelihood that he's going to or she's going to push a child again in the future because that's reinforcing. They got something good out of pushing the child. So with ticks, we believe the environment matters. What this means is, what are the things that are kind of going on before that might be increasing the likelihood of increasing the intensity or frequency of the ticks? So like common examples that we might be looking for are, you know, things that are stressful, taking tests, homework, uh, being in public places, all these things that might, for some kids, not all kids, or individuals, sorry, not just kids, might increase the likelihood of their ticks becoming more frequent or more intense. And we have a whole way of kind of assessing for that. And then we also want to look at the consequences. What's happening afterwards? Is the child or the individual, are they being comforted, right? Are they able to escape an aversive situation? Are they being laughed at? What are the things that are happening afterwards? Because if we can understand the, the antecedents and the consequences, we can find ways to shift the environment. So the example I like to think of in family work is where, you know, this child would come home from school and their ticks would get really bad whenever they had to do homework. Homework was a stressful situation for them. And which is, you know, stress homework stressful for a lot of people. It, it is. definitely it's was homework for me. Homework is rough. Yep, yeah. Same. Not my wife. She liked homework, but for me, it was stressful. <laughs> it's hard when you have ADHD. Exactly. Uh, that was always, homework was a challenge for me. Same. So, you know, child comes home and, you know, the expectation was they do their homework right away, right? So they come home, they, you know, within five minutes, you know, mom or dad would kind of sit down with them and say, all right, it's time to start your homework, right? They start their homework and their ticks would get really, really bad. They do a lot of movement ticks, you know, a lot of sound ticks. It would get really uncomfortable for the child and for everyone around them who, you know, was the expectation was that he was going to be doing his homework. That's the antecedent, doing homework. Okay. And then the consequence of that was almost inevitably, most nights, mom or dad would either finish the homework for him after about, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes of having, after having started the homework, or, you know, they would have emailed the teacher or something saying, you know, he couldn't do the homework that night. And what would happen is that once he got out of doing homework, the ticks, whew, they would get much better, uh, right? Still going yeah. on, but they would get much better. And so this cycle was created where homework became tick time, and then he got out of it, got out of this aversive situation, and the ticks would get better. Yeah, yeah, not surprised to hear that. Yeah. 
Exactly. It makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Although, again, not always, because if we think of ticks as something that's divorced from the environment, this shouldn't be happening. But clearly, right, right, there's right. this relationship with ticks and how much people tick in the environment. And so the intervention, right, knowing this, helping them see this pattern was the first part. But the second part was creating intervention. And so putting aside my feelings on homework for a second, which are really, I don't know <laughs> that kids should be doing it at all if there needs to be homework. But working on the assumption mm-hmm. that, like, this kid needed to do his homework and the school is expecting it, et cetera, et cetera. We decided to come up with a plan that would shift a little bit of these antecedents, what happened before and the consequences, to decrease the likelihood that his ticks would get so much worse when doing homework. And so the two things that we did were, one, we created a plan where he actually would have about 15, 20 minutes before needing to start homework to just relax, chill out, eat a snack, watch some TV. So he didn't have to jump straight from seven hours in school into doing his homework. And then the other piece we added was instead of he just got out of doing his homework when the ticks would get bad, we implemented set breaks. So he would do his homework however long. He didn't have a huge amount of homework. You know, let's say about 30 to 45, 60 minutes worth of homework. But mm-hmm. every 10 to 15 minutes, he would have a break, regardless of how bad his ticks were. The idea was that by creating these breaks, he would have a chance to let loose some of that steam that was building up from just like the aggravation, the discomfort from homework, exhaustion, all of that stuff. He'd get those breaks, but it wasn't done immediately in response to his ticks, which would then reinforce, like, my ticks get really bad when I have to do my homework, right? Oh, right. It was done at set intervals every about 15, you know, 10, 15 minutes, right? He'd get a, a few minutes of a break. And what we saw is over time, well, one, homework became less of an issue overall with the family. But two, the ticks actually weren't quite as bad during homework as they used to be. Right? They're still worse during homework than other times. Homework is still stressful, but it mm-hmm. wasn't as bad. So that's the functional assessment and intervention piece. And then the third piece of CBID, and this is really the core of it, there's been studies on CBID as a package, but there's been a number of studies on the HRT component itself, which is habit reversal training. Bad name. It was habit reversal therapy was something that was existing in around like the 70s for things that weren't tick related for habits. And it was kind of then co-opted and used for ticks. But ticks are not habits. But here is where individuals with ticks are basically learned to become really aware of their ticks and use what's called a competing response. So before I get into that, I'm going to have to take a step backwards and, and provide some background here because it gets a little technical. So basically, the way to think about it is the behavioral model of Tourette syndrome People with Tourette's, it's something genetic, it's something neurological, there's something going on in the brain, we really don't quite know what it is, something related to the basal ganglia. What seems to be the case for about 70% of people with Tourette's syndrome is that they experience what's called a premonitory urge before they tick. So this uncomfortable mm-hmm. feeling, you know, phenomenological feeling, localizing the area where the tick occurs. So if it's, you know, a, a shoulder twitching tick, right, there's probably this feeling somewhere around the shoulder, it can be described as a pressure or a tickle or an itch. Mm-hmm. And what happens is the individual with ticks does the tick as a way of relieving that feeling in that part of their body, getting rid of that uncomfortable feeling. And what we have here is what's called a negative reinforcement cycle. What that means is we have urge, discomfort, tick, relief, right? Relief is, it's called a negative reinforcement cycle because you take away the discomfort. And what happens is that there's this sort of implicit or unconscious learning going on of, you know, um, uh, relief. Oh, next time I have a tick, I'm going to, I have this urge. I'm going to do the tick that makes this feeling go away. Right. Okay. And the more it happens, the idea at least is that that gets reinforced. And basically you learn 
the only way to get rid of this bad feeling is I need to do this tick right now or else this bad feeling will never go away. Right, right. And so what HRT does is it says, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's very little in our experience as behavioral psychologists that actually just goes on forever. And I wonder if we there might be another way of stopping that negative reinforcement cycle. Right, right now we have tick equals relief. I wonder if there's another way to get relief. Okay. And what what we what we do is we teach our clients to become really really aware of that urge because you need to know when that urge is happening in order to do this this next piece. And instead of doing the tick, they engage in what's called a competing response. So a competing response is a behavior that has three rules. It's incompatible with the tick. So if the tick is some sort of shoulder up and down movement on a podcast, I can't show you. <laughs> it's something where you might kind of hold your shoulder down. Okay. Incompatible. You can't have your shoulder going up and hold it down at the same time. Right, right. Rule number two is that can be done anytime, anywhere. So you kind of stick your hand in, right? So when I teach kids this, I, you know, they'll inevitably say something like, stick your hand in your pocket. And I'll say, well, do you wear pockets into the shower? Oh, right? probably right. not. You won't, right? So you can't do it everywhere. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Not every pair of pants has pockets girl pants tends to might be much less likely to have pockets or <laughs> pockets true. and take your yeah. hands in and stuff. So it needs to be something that can be done anytime, anywhere. And then the third rule is it's less noticeable than the tick. If you just held your hand straight up, you know, while you had the urge to do the tick, it might be incompatible with the up and down movement, but it's going to look a little strange probably to walk around with your hand yeah, up. A little right? bit, yeah. The teacher will think you have a question all the time. Exactly. It's like, no, no, it's just my competing response. Just, that, you know, that's don't what worry I'm doing. Don't, yeah, just ignore it. Yeah. The idea is that if you engage with the competing response instead of the tick, eventually that urge is going to go up and up, but eventually it actually hits a natural ceiling. And when it hits that ceiling, that urge is actually going to go down on its own. And so what you're learning is, hey, I don't need to tick in order to get relief. That relief will actually come on its own. Wow. And the way the way I talk about it is, you know, I talk with kids and I'll be like, you know, have you ever gone swimming in a cold pool? And kids will be like, yeah, of course I've gone swimming. And what kind of stupid person do you think I am? Of course I've gone swimming, right? What, what's I'm a question? kid. Like, That's okay, what so, I do. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Of course I go swimming. So. I'll then say, have you ever jumped into a cold pool? Of course I have. Why all the dumb questions? Right, hear, me, hear me out though, right? So how does it feel when you jump into a cold pool? You notice it. It's cold. It hurts for it's that, cold. that first part. Yeah. Ah, you're a, you're, 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 you're so smart. You already know the answer, right? It's cold at first, but what happens when you stay in the pool for a little while? You get used to it. You don't notice the cold anymore. Exactly. You don't notice the cold anymore. Your body adjusts. Does the temperature of the water objectively change? No. Not unless you're peeing in my yeah. pool. And then, and can get out of my pool, <laughs> That's right? another story then. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but the, the temperature doesn't change, right? Not really. What changes is your relationship with that feeling. Right. right with that right. temperature. And that's the idea, that by engaging with a competing response for long enough, right? And the idea that you hold the competing response for at least a full minute or until the urge to tick goes away, which everyone is longer, mm -hmm. your relationship with the need to tick changes your relationship with the urge sorry with the premonitory urge changes it goes from the thing that oh my god i can't handle this i need to get rid of this right now to this thing of hey i'm okay i can handle this it actually goes away on its own and at least theoretically or ostensibly is over time the more you do this the shorter and shorter that time period between urge tick and 
and urge going away by holding competing response, that should be getting shorter over time. I see. I see. This is so fascinating. It sounds like in the early stages, we would tell people to hold on to that competing response for a minute. And then after that, if they need to tick, I guess they tick or, or if they have the ability to keep holding it. But well, actually, we tell them from the beginning, you want to hold the competing response for as long as possible. Really? Right? The idea is to hold it until the urge goes away. Okay. Right? So you work under the – with the confidence, with the the knowledge, the belief that the urge will go away. And when I've done this with clients, right, sometimes it can be done within less than a minute sometimes. Wow. Sometimes I've had clients hold a competing response, especially that first time, 15, 20 minutes. Wow. So, yeah, but I have I have yet to be in a situation with a client where the urge hasn't at some point dissipated. And that's the, the best thing, the look on the child's face. Mostly I work with children when they do it for that first time. And it's like, yeah, oh, it actually went away. And I'll turn them like, I'll be like, before they did this make sense. Do you think it will work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then afterwards, when it actually works, I'll be like, so did you actually think that was going to work? They'll be like, I didn't. That was so cool. Wow. It's got to be eye-opening. I mean, I personally, I, I've had Tourette since I was a kid. I, I did a little bit of CBIT in eighth grade, but with a therapist that was actually trying to learn as we went, he bought, went out and bought the book because he had never never done even C, he did He did CBT, but not CBIT and, and not specifically for Tourette's. I ended up not going through the full course of it. I know it can take three months or so, and, and it, it takes a lot of stress and, and time. So even just hearing you say that, that like, if I were to just keep holding the competing response, eventually the urge to take that premonitory urge would go away. That's amazing. That's like mind blowing for me. I, I would just, I just imagine myself, you know, my energy, the tension, yeah. the stress just boils and boils and boils. And then I, and I explode or something, but like, I don't know. I've never tried to hold it that long, but yeah, that's so promising to hear that this is, you know, that you've seen this with everyone you've worked with. And then over time, it just takes less and less. And uh, I guess eventually, is it fair to say that eventually the competing response will satisfy that premonitory urge in the same way that the tick would? So it's interesting, right? So the way I like to, the, the metaphor I like to use is if someone's like training for some sort of like triathlon or something where like for some reason you always swim in like this really cold water, right? I don't know. That's, that's my understanding of these things. And so... To train, you decide to start swimming every day. You know, 5 a.m., you jump into a cold pool, you swim, you know, for an hour, however long. And day number one, it's going to be cold at first. Day number two, it's going to be cold at first. Week number three, it still might be cold. But by month number six, it might not be as cold anymore. Over time, mm -hmm. again, your, your relationship with this urge to tick changes. This is one of the things with Tourette's syndrome, especially with younger kids, is that the ticks change a lot. And so, you know, you might need different competing responses for different ticks. In fact, you usually do. One of the things I do with all my clients is we track over time, right, the frequency of their ticks and how much their ticks are bothering them for every tick that they have. We add new ones every week if new ticks come. And, you know, one of the ways we track success is, hey, the ticks we're working on, have those been getting better, right? Have the frequency decreased and have the discomfort, the, the what's called subjective units of discomfort, SUD scores, have those gone down? Almost always, that's what we see. But sometimes we see that for also ticks that we haven't even started working on because that's the nature wow. of ticks. Is that it's not because of the treatment. It's because right ticks just sort of shift over time. Right, right. And right. so we do know this works because when we do the research on – when the studies have been done on people in the weightless conditions versus treatment conditions or the alternative treatment conditions, the ticks for the people in the HRT or the CBIT treatment condition, their ticks do get better over time. But the idea is that right, – again, it's not a cure. It's a tool. Right. It's, mm -hmm. oh, I know how to learn to be really become really aware of this urge to tick. And I know how to come up with a competing response and I can use it 
if and when I want. And that's really key. Right. Because a lot of times, ticking is actually easier and less distracting than using a competing response might be. You really have to be focused on it. And I do believe it gets easier and easier over time. But I don't use it for all of my ticks because at this stage in my life, very often my ticks are pretty minor. And it's just easier to do a tick than to use a competing response. You know, for the self-injuring ticks or the very embarrassing, noticeable ticks, I could see those being big candidates for it. So like, let's say, let's say I have 12 ticks roughly, and, you know, maybe four of those I would rank as like pretty bad, like, or, or, you know, problematic. They're the ones I'm concerned about. Maybe they're embarrassing or they're painful to do a lot. Would you start on all four of them at once? Or do you try to develop a competing response kind of one tick at a time? Because obviously there, there's a, a certain level of like, right. we can, we got to prioritize the work we're doing. Or is this such a thing where you, you actually can focus on multiple ticks at the same time? I typically focus on one tick at a time. So we create, you know, with all the individuals I work with, we create our tick hierarchy, which is our list of ticks mm. um, that we review every week at the start of the session. We'll pick our first tick to work on, and we'll start with this awareness training. Actually, before you get aware of the urge, you start with just making sure they're aware of the tick itself. You get a description of it, and then you say, all right, every time you do the tick, you know, I just want you to raise your hand to show me that you know that you're doing the tick. You know, I make it a game usually with kids. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they'll get good at that. And then we'll say, okay, let's now work on catching the urge. So every time you feel the urge to tick, raise your hand before, and then you can uh... do the tick. And early on, this awareness piece alone might take a good portion of the session. Usually the very first tick I'll work on with a client, we usually don't get past this awareness training piece. I send them home over the week to practice just that awareness training with a parent or a support person. And then, you know, next week they'll come back, you know, and assuming that they still have that good awareness, we then develop our competing response. I have a whole system for going through it and we'll do one tick at a time. Um, and I'm very big okay. on, I know different clinicians are different on this. Some clinicians just kind of give their clients tick, uh, sorry, competing responses. I don't like to do that. My goal is to make sure my clients know how to do this themselves. I have a repository of, I don't know, hundreds of competing responses at this point, <laughs> but it's because actually I've learned a lot from the clients I've worked with where I have them. We, yeah, we go through, you know, we create a list together and then we pick which ones meet the three criteria and, you know, they think would work best. And then we practice it. And so we'll do one tick at a time, right? And so it might take two, three weeks to go through tick number one. But by the time we're up to tick number three or four, it might be awareness training, competing response development, competing response practice, all in one session, one 45-minute session. We're also working on all the ticks previously. You know, by the time we get up to tick number three or four, we're still working on all the other competing responses when those ticks occur. I see. And I imagine no two clients are the same. That's the nature of the, the idiosyncrasy of Tourette. If you had to say a typical or average duration for someone to really master CBIT, master the art of, of developing competing responses, you know, I remember years ago, I, I heard three months get cited as like an approximate, you know, kind of ballpark. Is that still what we say? Or, or what's your thoughts on that? So that these numbers, right? And, and this is true of really all treatment, research-based treatment, is the numbers are based off of their clinical research trials, which have sort of cutoff points. You know, they only go on mm. for so long. So the treatment, you know, so typically, you know, TS treatments have been about, you know, the research has been about, you know, three months. The way I like to put it with the family that I work with is that by, you know, after our intake sessions and feedback, by six to eight sessions in, if we're not seeing any difference, I'm doing something wrong. Mm. Or this might not be the right time for treatment or any number of other things. 
I would say by six to eight weeks, we should start seeing a difference. The way I like to structure graduation from treatment is I'll actually have children that I work with run through an entire CBIT session with their parents in the room. They're running it, though, right? They're kind of like, I'm not running it. I'm just there mm. in the background, right? This is to show that they've learned that mastery. Right. I would say three months is a is is a is a fair time frame for you know most individuals that I've worked with at least to really get that beginning stage mastery. But you know I, I have found that my clients with ticks that they tend to be kids and and the families like they tend not to want to leave me. <laughs> I would say that you know we kind of have like some weekly sessions. I would say three months is a good rough marker. You know we usually move on to every other week and then to monthly check ins and then like sometimes I've had clients who have you know I maybe haven't seen for a year or more come back in for months or two for booster sessions just as like life stages change. I see. Have you noticed any differences in CBIT for adults versus for children? Yes. So I I think that there are sort of two main differences with I found with children versus adults. The first is. In some ways, it's harder working with adults. I think that relationship between sort of the urge and the tick has just become so reinforced, so automatic for us, right? Where it actually can be a lot harder to really use a competing response. You were saying how like you try and imagine using a competing response, it just feels like it's never going to end. And I think that's mm -hmm. actually more common in some ways with adults than with children. Right. With children, it's like the ticks are changing a lot more, right? So they might have a tick mm -hmm. for a week and then that tick's gone forever, right? Um, right, right. You know, by adults tend to have the same ticks that have kind of stuck around for a more extended. Mine are pretty stable. Yeah, exactly. And so I think the relationship between the urge and the ticking is so quick that it can be much harder. To, even though typically awareness of the urge is better, mm -hmm. being able to sort of jump in there and use the competing response can be harder, and use it until the urge goes away. So that's usually where things are are harder with adults. Where things are easier is that if an adult is bringing themselves to treatment for CBIT, they tend to be pretty motivated and they tend to have, you know, that more fully functioning kind of frontal lobe thing going on where basically like they're able <laughs> to, you know, they don't need to be enticed or rewarded and they tend to be more aware of the urge actually once they start paying attention to it. Like training for awareness of the urge tends to be easier. And so that's what I found in the major difference is that like it's usually they're better at recognizing the urge as adults, but it can be harder to fully implement the competing response until the urge goes away. Kids, I find it's a little bit the opposite. I see. That's interesting. One of the things I've heard is that CBIT can be very helpful with motor tics and, and the, the movement tics. With vocal tics, uh, I've heard it can be a bit of a challenge just because a lot of it comes down to breathing exercises and the, and the relaxation piece becomes a lot more more important that's a bigger piece of you know of, of reducing the urge what are your thoughts on that do you find some ticks are more conducive to this kind of therapy than others so i here i think motor ticks are easier for two reasons typically as far as i know at least the research actually doesn't show that it's easier for motor versus vocal ticks um i, I might be missing something there but as far as I know, the research... Oh, this is just what right. I heard anecdotally. So that's great to hear that the research is not... I don't think it seems to show that. Okay. That being said, I think major difference is that for motor tics, typically, there could be a number of different competing responses that might work. Again, like I have this repository in my head of like hundreds at this point of probably competing responses throughout the body. With vocal tics, there tend to be fewer competing responses that you can really come up with. Mm. So typically for any number of arm movements, right, there might be eight different arm potential arm ticks. There might be 12 potential competing responses for those eight different ticks, right. right? For vocal ticks, 
it tends to be breathing, so slow controlled breathing tends to be um, really one of the only ones. Now, it's not quite true. Again, you want to know where is the urge located. So hypothetically, for a tick that's saying something, just holding your mouth closed might be a good competing response, right? Breathing or not. Typically, that's why I think, you know, the anecdotally that people say vocal ticks are harder. And, and that's also why, like, we do know that they can be a little bit harder at first. And so I typically will, when I work with a client, pick sort of like the, a, a larger muscle motor tick, mm. you know, I have usually an easier place to start. But I'll say I think the hardest ticks are usually eye-related ticks are probably harder than any vocal ticks that I've worked with. And that's typically the case. But yeah, I think just the variety of competing responses you can come up with are more varied and vast for motor ticks. And so that's why I think it can be a little harder for vocal ticks sometimes in that, like, there's just fewer options to try to engage with that competing response until the urge passes. Right. That makes sense. Who would be a, can- a, a not so great candidate for CBET? That's a really good question. And so typically there are, I would say, two main, I want to say disqualifying, or three kind of quote-unquote disqualifying factors for for CBIT. One might be age, right? How Mm. old is the kid? Younger kids tend to have a harder time with this. Like, And by young, I mean like four to six, four to seven. I've actually, so there's actually CBIT Junior, which is a a (laughs) treatment for younger kids. That's awesome. um, Where, uh, yeah, and it focuses a lot more on the functional assessment and intervention piece. Uh. The assumption is that younger kids aren't going to have that same ability to recognize, notice the urge, use a compete, come up with and use a compete response right 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 so age might be one factor another and this is a kind of a funny one considering the 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 overlap but adhd like there's a 40 to 60 percent comorbidity rate of adhd with Tourette's mm-hmm. syndrome but it seems to be adhd is another one because it, it's just one the awareness is harder to build when you have less ability to focus when focusing is harder and then also the impulsivity can make it harder to not engage with a tick while holding the competing response I've not found this a huge, actually, personally, anecdotally, I've not found most of my clients with Tourette's syndrome also have ADHD, and I've not found it a huge disqualifying factor, but the research seems to indicate that ADHD is a, a factor that makes this treatment less effective. And then the third, I would say, is, are there other things that are going on that are more challenging or mm. problematic? So just use ADHD again as an example, right? You see a lot with kids, I, I found where, you know, the ADHD is what's causing more of the academic impact, social impact, all of the stuff, but the ticks are more obviously noticeable, right? Right, And so the ticks become the target, you know, of like, oh my God, it's the ticks that are the problem, but really the ticks might not be. And the research seems to indicate actually that individuals with more quote-unquote pure TS tend to have many fewer academic and social challenges than kids with ADHD and Tourette's syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, and kids with ADHD and Tourette's syndrome, their social academic, the impact, you know, their social and academic profile tends to be a lot more similar to kids with ADHD alone than kids with Tourette's syndrome alone. Okay. And so that's a, another disqualifying factor it's, it, in my mind is, are there other things that are actually more challenging or problematic than the ticks, even if the ticks are the most obvious? OCD might be another example, 20, 40% mm-hmm. comorbidity rate, but the ticks might be more obvious. A lot of people with OCD are very good at hiding their OCD or their OCD is pretty subtle. But it might be the OCD. So that's kind of a third is I would want to look at the other things and potentially treat those if those actually seem to be causing more of a challenge or a problem. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's part of that taking a holistic look at their care and making sure that, you know, we're prioritizing the the issue that we need to. 
What would you say is a major misconception about CBET? So a major misconception is that it doesn't work. Mm. I've heard a lot of people say like, oh, it doesn't work or it didn't work for me and it just doesn't work. And, And I think that there are two pieces that kind of fit into that usually or a few. One is that I think people sometimes look at it as like it's going to be this cure and it's not. And that's another major misconception. It is not a cure. It is a set of tools that individuals with Tourette's syndrome and their families can use to minimize the intensity and frequency of their tics if and when they choose to. But it is not a cure. It's not going to make the tics go away. So the idea that it doesn't work is like, I think it's because people often look at it as if it's supposed to cure the tics, cure them rather than just be a tool mm-hmm. that people can use, right? And again, it doesn't work for everyone. The research shows it works, but it works for about 50% of people who try it. I mean, that there's 50% of people oh, who wow. it doesn't seem huh. to work for, right? We don't 100% know why. I think there could be a lot of different factors, but again, it's not a cure. Two other major misconceptions I hear is one is, but it will make my ticks worse if I don't do my tests, mm-hmm. right? And there's this idea of the rebound effect. So for a while, there was what we now know as a myth the idea of like, if you holding your tics, they're just going to come back mm-hmm. worse mm-hmm. later. And this came a lot, it seemed to be like from kids who would come home from school and are ostensibly are holding in their tic, trying to suppress their tics. And then they tic right. get really bad. They held it like, oh, in all day at school, and now they're home and all the tics come out and yeah. Right. But when we've done careful studies on rebound effects, it wow. doesn't exist. And what seems to be happening maybe in those school situations is like, well, these are kids who are also, they spent the entire day in school mm-hmm. and they're exhausted, right? Yep. And it takes get worse when you're tired. They're more comfortable at home. You got to do homework when you get home, like more all more. the stressors exactly, of being home. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So the idea that it will make your tics worse is a, a definite misconception that, that there's zero research, as far as I know, showing that it makes it worse. And another misconception is, oh, if I do this competing response, that can become mm. a tick. And I will not say that has never happened, but it has rarely, rarely in the, the I don't know, not 100 yet, but I don't know, maybe even 100 plus kids I've worked with with Tourette's syndrome at this point, I've, I've rarely ever seen a competing response become a tick. But the competing response, right, they've done uh, uh, what's called exposure and response prevention, uh, which is a treatment for anxiety and OCD and, and, and PTSD. And they've done this with Tourette's syndrome, which is basically HRT without the competing response. In these small-scale studies, it works seemingly just as well as the competing response as HRT. So the competing response is a tool to help us not engage with the tick, right, and hit that what's called habituation, right, that urge goes away. So that's another misconception is that, like, the the competing response will become a tick. It doesn't seem to happen, and it's just a part of the tool. That makes sense. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Lickman, for all of your wonderful insight and input on this topic. Anything else that comes to mind that you want people to know about CBET or Tourette? I, I think something that's really, really important is when we think about Tourette syndrome in general and CBET more specifically, is to sort of keep things in, in, in the boxes that make sense. And so what I mean by that is, with Tourette syndrome, there tends to be a lot of comorbidity, you know, ADHD, OCD, anxiety, learning disabilities, all of this stuff, right? It rarely mm-hmm. comes alone. And I think what's really, really important is that when we think of Tourette syndrome, we are able to distinguish what is a tick or what is Tourette's and what is these other things. Because I think what happens is when we talk about my tics, you know, and really, you know, we're talking about the ADHD or the OCD, what then ends up happening is that they say, and then CBIT didn't work for me. It's like, well, CBIT isn't meant for OCD. CBIT wasn't meant to help right. with the ADHD. And to, to sort of homogenize and pile 
all of the diagnoses, all of the different challenges that someone might be putting into just having just the ticks, I think really can can make it a lot more difficult to think about treatment and what treatment is going to be effective for what. And so I think that's a really important piece of right? Again, CBIT is not a, a cure, it's a tool, and it's a tool for ticks. It's not a tool for OCD. It's not a tool for ADHD. And you can have Tourette syndrome and ADHD and OCD, and these can be different things that, again, they do sort of all mixed together. It's not always clean cut, but I think it's an important distinction so that when we talk about our challenges, right, and I think about this in my own life between like where ADHD has been a challenge for me, where my tics have been a challenge for me. And so be able to recognize that they're not the same thing always all the time. Mm-hmm. No, that's a really important distinction to make too between the different comorbidities, especially with people who have, I'm looking specifically at OCD and the overlap with that. People will talk about teretic OCD and like that kind of unique yep. mix. I mean, I remember as a kid, I, yeah. if I read a paragraph in a textbook and I didn't understand it, the, the OCD part of my brain would tell me, okay, read it seven more times. And I would just reread the whole thing again, right. again, again, again. Yep. But I can tell you that that urge in my head to reread it again and again and again was, it felt like the urge to tick. It was that, it was a kind of premonitory urge. Right. But, you know, in this case, what you may be saying is, is that wouldn't really be a candidate for, for CBET. That is more the OCD kind of speaking louder. I would say that, I mean, based on what you just described, that actually might mm. be more of a tick, right? If they're right with OCD, as just like, again, it can mm-hmm. get a little messy there, right? I mean, I don't want to deny that, but with OCD, what we're looking for is specifically obsessive mm. content, right? Was there a, if I don't do this, something bad is going to happen? Or was there the thought really of like, I need to do this or else this bad feeling will never go away? Or is it more just a physiological experience, right? Maybe somewhere in your eyes yeah, or yeah. your head that made you have to reread and reread, right? So if it's more of the kind of like the content of like, if I don't reread this paragraph seven times, something bad is going to happen to me or my family or something I care about, the exposure I would do would be a little different than the than the CBIT, than the um, right competing response behavior that I might do for mm, a tick mm-hmm, treatment. Mm-hmm. It, it would be a little different. My fear would always be that, oh, this is going to be on the test somewhere. I need to know it. So uh, let me make sure I right. understand it and, and then some. And I would just keep reading yep. it. And so that's more of an OCD thing where I would actually there, right? Like if, if that was a tick, I would just have you read it once and then just have the page in front of you mm-hmm. and not rereading it. You know, maybe closing your eyes, maybe putting the book down, putting the book behind you, covering mm-hmm. the page mm-hmm. maybe. But for the OCD, what I would do is for an exposure, I would probably have you you know, read it once, turn it over, and then tell yourself, because I'm not rereading this, I am going to fail this <laughs> test. I am going to fail, you know, and right, whatever right, it is. Right, right, right. And work through that that thought process, you know, go down that rabbit hole of uh, in your brain. Makes sense. Well, exactly. Dr. Lickman, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. This was a, a great discussion, and I'm so glad we got to have you on. My wife says I can talk to a wall, so what's better than talking to a wall? Talking to a screen. So, <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> you got a bunch of listeners that'll be eager to hear it, so now you have an audience for sure. Uh, well, enjoy the rest of your day, and hope you have a wonderful week thank ahead. you as well. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was really lovely. Likewise. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Uptick, brought to you by the New Jersey Center for Tourette Syndrome and Associated Disorders, empowering you to stretch the boundaries to live your best life. The NJ Center for Tourette Syndrome and Associated Disorders, NJCTS, its directors and employees assume no responsibility for the accuracy, completeness, objectivity, or usefulness of the information presented on this podcast. We do not endorse any recommendation or opinion made by any guest, nor do we advocate any treatment.